Welcome to Even the Trunchbull, our show about children's books and why we still love them as adults. She's Nina. They're Matt. And we think that children's books are for everyone because we've all been kids. Even, Even the, the Trunchbull. Trunchbull. They're all mistakes, children. Filthy, nasty things. Glad I never was one. From Roald Dahl's beloved Matilda, despite her protestations. Each episode, we review one picture book and one chapter book. We've started off with books that we read as kids, but if you've got a book that you'd like us to review, especially if you are currently a kid, please get in touch. You can email us on eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter at trunchbullpod and on Instagram at eventhetrunchbull. And listeners, we made you a promise a year ago. (laughs) This episode has been pushed from last summer. But we are finally doing an episode about Titans, Togas and Thunderbolt Gods. Yeah. It's all about Greek myth and we are going to be reading Rick Riordan's Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief. And our picture book is going to be a picture book of poetry and it's called Echo Echo. It's by Marilyn Singer and illustrated by Josie Mass. So Matt, shall we kick it off with Percy Jackson? Absolutely. Percy Jackson, for people who don't know, is the story of a young lad in New York, Percy Jackson, who's got a missing father and a sort of loving but fairly absent mother who's stuck in what is essentially a pretty abusive relationship with a live-in partner who gets sent on a quest by the Greek gods So basically have Percy, quite a sort of working class lad in school. His mum works in a sweet shop. Aye, and Percy, pretty early in the book, one of his uh, meaner maths teachers turn into a sort of demigorgon monster (laughs) and try to attack him. And one of his other teachers chucks him a sword to fight her off with and he slays her. But then what's so great is that the teacher who threw him the sword is Latin teacher. Basically, everybody decides to gaslight him about it. It's like, don't know what you're talking about. That maths teacher never existed. Like, the whole school seems to have forgotten that she existed. And he goes on like that without knowing the truth and without anybody acknowledging the truth of what he saw for the rest of the term. Yeah, so he's sort of going like, that was a pretty mad dream that almost definitely actually happened. And then, yeah, it ends up getting led off to hero training camp. Yeah. Um, think Disney Hercules 1997, but with lots of Herculeses. It's really lovely. So it's sort of all set in Manhattan, mm. um, but has this sort of concealing spell so that it's it's in this valley that is kind of in a fold of time and space that you can't see from the outside and it has its own weather system. And all of the kids there are children of the gods. So they are uh, demigods. They've all got one god parent and one mortal parent. And they're all sorted into houses depending on who their god parent is. Percy immediately gets stuck with the Hermes house because he has not been claimed. He does not know who his god parent is. And Hermes being the house of sort of thieves and waifs. And travellers. And anyone lost in between places without a place to belong. That's where all the unclaimed kids go. So you've got this sort of hilarious thing where you've got this 
sort of like frat house situation yeah. where you've got 12 of these houses in a sort of horseshoe shape around a sort of central sports field. They're all pretty much the same size. Some of them are a lot grander than others. Some of them are pretty much empty. There's like yeah. no one living in them at all. And Hermie's house is like packed to the rafters. Like it gets brought in. <laughs> it's like, so this is your like th- three square feet of floor to put your sleeping bag and your stuff on. <laughs> So it's yeah, it's really it's really appealing. It's such a fun setting. I really like the setting. Yeah, the backdrop to all of this is that there is a war brewing with the gods, as there is in Greek mythology. The gods are like petty and squabbling, yeah, and very human in their fallings out. And Zeus thinks that Hades has stolen one of his thunderbolts. Well, at first he thinks Poseidon did. That's it. Yes. He thinks that Poseidon's nicked it, and then they both think that Hades is playing them off against each yeah. other. And Percy, with two friends, Annabeth and Grover, get sent on a quest to try and find and reclaim the lightning bolt. Yeah. So yeah, so how did, how did you find it, Nina? I found it delightful. I've never read this book before. Um, I can see where people have compared it to Harry Potter. You know, it's two boys and a girl, uh, magical quest. But Sort of there the similarities end, I would say. Well, it just came out at the, around the same yeah. time as the Harry Potter hype, right? Yeah. I mean, it came. When did this one come out? Two thousand five. Two thousand five. So, because I, I I remember it as like, oh, it's that Harry Potter knockoff. And I think that's actually really unfair. I think it's completely its own beast. Entirely, it's and it's arguably a lot more interesting. Than... It is very interesting. I love so it's written in the first person, and I love Percy's talking voice. I just love him. The way he talks, it's exactly 12-year-old boy in 2005. Like, he's got the voice just right. It's such a romp. Like, it's so fast-paced. The chapters are really short. The chapters have got these great names. I'm going to read out a few to give you a taste, listener. Chapter 1. I accidentally vaporise my maths teacher. Chapter 2. Three old ladies knit the socks of death. Like, that's what they're all like. <laughs> it's funny because, like, each chapter seems to tell you exactly what's going to happen in it, but they don't actually spoil it at all. They're almost like little prophecies. Well, it's it's again where we talked about when we did uh, did the crossover episode uh, with Fantasy Book Swap and we yeah. chatted about um, City of the Plague Gods, yeah. which is obviously part of the, like, Rick Riordan series. Like, mm. it's that same style of, like, dead chatty, dead yeah. conversational. I reckon City of the Plague God does it slightly better for me. I right. just found that right and funnier, but yeah. Yeah, it's it's completely in the same vein. It's the same sort of thing, which makes it exactly the kind of book to put in the hands of someone who thinks they don't like reading. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a really easy read. Yeah. Yeah. For the first sort of two chapters, I really didn't like it. Mm. And I was like, this is going to be a long read because right. that style really, that quick, like, quick quippiness, mm. like just really annoyed us. But it just soaked into it, and I, I don't know if it's just like it it sits with it with such confidence, and the world's so great. But it is, like, I think very deliberately, very fast-paced yes. at the beginning. Like, it's definitely designed for kids who might not otherwise sit with a book. Yeah. But then also, I mean, it's very openly talking about Percy having ADHD. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of quite deliberate. It's ADHD and dyslexia he's got in it, mm. so it's, like, quite deliberate, uh, like, rep. Yeah, and that's really cool. Especially in 2005, I yeah. think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I also like the way that like Percy refers to it. He's like, and then my ADHD brain did this. 
And I could see why. Like, yeah. this kind of brain does not serve in the modern world, but in a battle, it's pretty cool. Yeah, totally. Some properties will sort of give out disabilities as kind of little, I guess, good rep tokens at the beginning. Like, oh, this person has disability and this one has that. And then never refer to it again. I like that, Mm. you know, like consistently every time he's asked to read something, he's like, oh, it looked like this. Or, you know, like, oh, I had to really slow down and read this. You know, like it's constantly present in his life and it doesn't go away when he finds out he's a demigod. Yeah, it's not something that's just sort of like mentioned at the beginning it's not like and now i've got superpowers so i'm not disabled anymore it gets sort of like transformed around to being like this real superpower but without taking the disability away there's such a trope with like disability representation as well where like well actually it's a superpower and then it takes away all the disabling sides of it and flips it completely to be like in this world there aren't any like i do have a problem a little bit with some of the things rick riordan's done with disability here and i'm reliably informed that, you know, he's taken on the criticism and writes a bit differently about that now. And, you know, good on him for that. But so I started this and I was like, oh, cool. We've been immediately introduced to like two different disabled characters. There's the Latin teacher who's a wheelchair user. um, And there's Grover who, I mean, I don't like the language used, but it's 2005, like is crippled and has some sort of muscular problem. But then immediately they're both taken away. He's like, oh, one of them's a centaur and one of them's a satyr. Yeah, he's he's in a wheelchair because he's got horse's legs. That is cool. (laughs) That is cool. But it was a bit yeah. disappointing to have that rep immediately like whipped away. Like, oh no, they're just completely different creatures. I guess like trying to give the benefit of the doubt, like maybe there's something in like an attempt at like, oh, these people in society that you might overlook, actually they're like absolutely incredible otherworldly beings. But I, I can see that, but they could be that and still be disabled. I mean, I suppose in a way they are. Like yeah. any time the Latin teacher wants to operate as a human in the human world. Yeah. He needs a wheelchair. Yeah, right. that's true. So I suppose there is that sense of, like, he's disabled by the society he's yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, and that When he's cool. in the, like, hidden Greek veil, he can be a man-horse. Yeah. Like, no sweat. But they haven't even made the hidden Greek veil completely accessible to a centaur. There are places he can't sit. They haven't made seats his size. He doesn't fit in all the buildings. So maybe he is still disabled. Yeah, and that, that is cool. Yeah. I, I will give it, like, that is really cool. I don't so much love that, like, every fat person we meet is either evil or a monster. <laughs> yeah, absolutely amazing disability rep right from the off. But I think, again, we mentioned this in the crossover episode about City of the Player Guard, like, this falls down hugely. I think partly due to the time it was written yeah. in. But yeah, it is fully, fully all the way throughout is the trope of baddies have scars on their faces yeah. and are fat. Yeah. 100%. Well, and the, like, they use one Muslim coded woman in a post 9-11 world as like, and she's the only Muslim coded woman. We meet Medusa and she's disguised as a Muslim woman hiding her face and her hair. And that's really cool because it's hiding the snakes, right? Like, that is yeah, cool yeah. and clever. And also this sort of fantasy of white men that like, oh, terrorists could be under hijabs. Totally. I, th- I think it's, it's really cool to hear that he's taking the criticism on. I think, again, like 
you know, obviously without wanting to be too apologists about it, I think like looking at the context is important. And like 2005 yeah. is right after 9-11. And over here, like that's the height of like little Britain. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, like I think it's easy to forget, but it was a pretty nasty environment. Well, I agree. Like I really want to give them the benefit of the doubt on this. But it, but it does fully fall. Like if you're at all going to be tripped up yourself by those sort of things, it's it's going to be a, a tricky read. Yeah. Um, that that is that is very much an element, and it's a shame because that's the one bit of it, as I say, from about two chapters in, where I start to soak into it. Is the one thing that was like, mm, that's a shame. Like yeah. everything else is masterful. I don't know loads about the Greek myths, mm-hmm. and it made me so interested. In it is such a cool way to present yeah. those characters. It feels like, from the little bits I do know, feels like really true to the original in that just like that all awful people yes right (laughs) who are just trying to get one over on each other all the time by like nicking stuff each other and killing each other's kids trapping each other in golden nets and getting everyone to laugh at them (laughs) god yeah so this so let's talk that's a good example of this bit so there's this whole sequence how does this go again that side quest that they do for Ares. is that where you're going yeah give us give us the background to that one So Percy and his friends Annabeth and Grover are on their big quest to go to the underworld, retrieve the Thunderbolt and return it to the gods. As a side quest, Ares, god of war, just shows up on a massive motorbike. I love Ares so much. (laughs) And is like, hey kids, I've got a job for you. And Percy's like, why would we do this? And he's like, because if you don't, I'll kill you. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially. And besides, maybe I'll bestow some, you know, like little trinket upon you if you do this. Anyway, the problem is like, I've lost my shield. Um, I was on a date with my girlfriend and uh, we were disturbed and I had to make a quick getaway. And now my shield is like in the tunnel of love in an old disused water park. Can you go and get it for us? So our intrepid trio goes ahead into the disused water park, which on its own is quite creepy. Oh, fully creepy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, it's it's a gimme as a, like, creepy setting, isn't yeah. it? Like, There's this ride, the Tunnel of Love, like this water ride, but all the water's been drained out because it's disused. There's just this big empty swimming pool, which Percy immediately thinks would be great for skateboarding. And there is the shield and there's the paddle boat and there's all of these like it's so awkward because they're all about 12 well except Grover's 28 <laughs> but he's essentially a 12 year old he's a satyr yeah 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 because they they mature half as fast and there's all this like romance stuff you know there's this little heart-shaped boat with a little like pink canopy and everything and they have to go in there and like at first like Annabeth's like I'm not getting in there with you you know like oh a girl and a boy can't sit next to each other in a heart-shaped boat you know yeah, yeah <laughs> without yeah, implications yeah. but so they do it and they retrieve the shield and as soon as they do it turns out it's a trap by the girlfriend's husband which god is that again do you remember Ares is dating Aphrodite goddess of love Aphrodite is Married to Hephaestus, who's the god of forges and, you know, metalworking and who also canonically is disabled. He was sort of hurled off the mountain as a child and so he's disfigured in some ways 
and this is right, you know right. part of Greek myth pantheon. This is not Rick Riordan's doing, but so like Aphrodite doesn't love him because he's ugly, and so she goes off with Ares, god of war. And this for them has been going on for centuries. And Hephaestus yeah. knows, and he's kind of a, a bit embarrassed by it, and so he's always trying to catch them at it and like humiliate them. So he's set this trap inside the swimming pool. It's lined with little cupid statues with like bows and arrows. And then as soon as they touch the shield, the little cupid statues shoot their bows. And at first they're like, oh, they're shooting us. Like, no, they're shooting at each other. These threads. So it makes a net over the top of the swimming pool so they can't get out. And then all these little mechanized metal work (laughs) spiders, like pour into the pit <laughs> and then and then little video cameras like come out yeah. of like the cupid's head and it's like live on pantheon tv in half a yeah. minute <laughs> <laughs> so it's this like you've been framed yeah. like so that's a, a good example of the humor yeah and like the very clever way that he marries the mythology with the modern world camp half blood which is the place for the demigods. Well, we should describe it. Do you want to find a passage, actually, and read it out? Because I haven't read any yet. I literally can't even find my book. Okay, I'll find a passage. (laughs) I guess while you're looking for it, it's kind of a big sort of valley with a wood down one end. Um, You've got this central kind of meeting hall, which is roofless, like sort of essentially looks like the Parthenon, like this pillared hall where they all go for their meal um, and do their libations as well so like throw a bit of their meat back into the fire as an offering for the gods and you've got all the kids in different houses who are kind of like depending whose god they're the kid of changes like how they are so like Aphrodite's kids are all a bit sort of like sort of wishy-washy hippies and Ares kids are like the worst physical bullies proper love of scrap yeah i've found a passage here we must have been on the north shore of long island because on this side of the house the valley marched all the way up to long island sound which glittered about a mile in the distance between here and there i simply couldn't process everything i was seeing the landscape with dotted was buildings that looked like ancient greek architecture an open-air pavilion an amphitheater a circular arena except that they all look brand new their white marble columns sparkling in the sun In a nearby sand pit, a dozen high school-age kids and satyrs played volleyball. Canoes glided across a small lake. Kids in bright orange t-shirts like grovers were chasing each other around a cluster of cabins nestled in the woods. Some shot targets at an archery range. Others rode horses down a wooden trail, and unless I was hallucinating, some of their horses had wings. (laughs) Hmm. That's great. It's it's brilliant. It's like this brilliant setting. Um, It feels so adolescent. So, you know, like cusp of puberty, spending time away from your parents, trying out like new hobbies and sports, like hanging out with kids your own age, like singing around the campfire. In some ways, Camp Half-Blood is very cosy. In some other ways, it is incredibly violent. It's sort of vaguely in the background that, sure, people die reasonably regularly. Yeah. We have practiced sword matches yeah. and sometimes go hunting monsters yeah. in the woods. And sometimes the monsters win and people don't come back. It's worth mentioning the class thing you mentioned is really interesting here. Because what we'll have is like that Hogwarts setup. We were talking in the school episode about all of these kind of British fantasy boarding school mm. settings 
sort of inevitably being upper class, yeah. upper middle class yeah. in their setting. You know, even if you take Harry Potter where he's grown up in a sort of lower middle family where he's been badly mistreated, like he's not grown up well. He's also rich and he's from like an established family yeah. and he's like in it's surrounded by this environment with all of the trappings of aristocracy. Well, Lyra's the same. Lyra grows up in his Dark Materials in Jordan College. Yeah. Ostensibly as an orphan, but she is Lyra Bilacqua. She is like the child of two of the most powerful people in this world. Yeah, yeah. That everybody has to be like descended from a noble family of something, something. Like you can look at it as like it's somewhere where British fiction falls down. But I think it's interesting looking at an American example of like where it's just got yeah. this upper leg and this and this advantage because like there is a class structure in America yeah. but it's not so embedded it just feels so sort of more possible to have a very working class kid ending up in this same sort of uh, secluded cozy cut off like elite separate situation it's really refreshing to read that because obviously it's a trope of like kid lit fiction you want to get the parents out of the picture and you yeah. want an environment and like a sandbox for adventures that is like just for the kids and like a boarding school's ideal for that but having that without all of those class trappings is just so it's it, it's like you get this it's like a weight off your shoulders that you didn't realize was on there do you know what i mean yeah that's a really nice thing yeah. about it as well like all the kids are kind of lost right it's it's more kind of like a peter pan never never land that's a good analogy because the reason that the kids end up here is because being a demigod and knowing that you're a demigod attracts mythical monsters to you so partly it's also a refugee camp like they're in danger yeah. whenever they leave the bounds so annabeth should we talk about her a little bit so she's can do the daughter of athena Lovely bit in that as well, just quickly, where Percy meets and saying, oh, who's your dad then? She's like, what, you think it's only the Greek male gods who go around? Yeah, she calls him out for being sexist. Yeah, like, <laughs> no, no, the, the Greek the Greek women are given birth to truckloads of unclaimed children as well. Yeah. Like, they're all at it. They're yeah. all as bad as each other. That is a really nice bit, right, when she's introduced. So Annabeth has been there since she was seven which is unusual. It seems like most of them make it, Grover says, to about sixth grade without knowing who they are and without being in too much danger. Mm. So it's quite unusual that she came so young and she's come so young because her family situation has broken down, essentially. Like, her dad has married a mortal woman and had mortal children and the new wife sees Annabeth's presence as inherently threatening, doesn't even want Annabeth Mm. playing with her younger siblings. And so... Annabeth ran away, aged seven. So she's like, she's been in Camp Half-Blood without leaving five Mm. years. That is a really long time. And so, of course, she's itching to leave. And you can understand that, like, while when Percy arrives, like, it feels cosy and fun. People who've been here for years without ever being able to leave are starting to feel a bit trapped. So because Annabeth is the daughter of Athena... She's got this awful fear of spiders, which at first you're like, what? And then she tells you a quick story like, oh, yeah, my mother Athena challenged this girl to a weaving contest because Athena's supposed to be super good at weaving. It's one of the things she's good at. But the girl was better at it. And Athena got so angry that she turned the girl Arachne into a spider 
Mm. And now all of Arachne's children for like ever and ever have been out to get all of Athena's children forever and ever. So just all of Athena's offspring are like constantly yeah. being hunted by every little spider. <laughs> <laughs> so that thing when you see a spider in the room and someone goes like, oh, it'll just ignore you. going, no, actually, no, it won't. It's, <laughs> it's here for Annabeth, <laughs> specifically. It's, it's very much here for me. Uh. This is a really like fun way of introducing the Arachne story as well. Like a lot of little tidbits of Greek myth are just introduced in these offhand. Oh, you know, with like eye rolls, with kind of like, oh yeah, it's just, you know. My mum turned this girl into a spider. No big deal. Yeah. <laughs> It is great how it deals with kind of families and step families as well. That's yeah. kind of sitting in the background of all of it. Like all, like all of these kids, what they have in common is like either both or one of their parents is an absolute waster. Yeah. Who's your favourite character, Matt? It's Ares, yeah. who we've not talked about much yet. We mentioned very briefly. So Ares, god of war. Who they've already had plenty run-ins with one of his daughters in the Ares camp, who's kind of set up as the main bully. But yeah, so they're out on their quest. They're kind of somewhere in the Midwest, going town to town, stopped at a little sort of roadside diner, and up rolls Ares. And it's just like the most like good omens. It is really good omens. Very kind of actually Terry Pratchett sort of. He's got um, sunglasses on to hide the fact that his eyes are fireballs. <laughs> <laughs> It must have been such good fun to write. Beautiful writing where it, it tiptoes right on the edge, deliciously on the edge of cliché. Yes. A motorcycle the size of a baby elephant had pulled up to the curb. <laughs> All conversation in the diner stopped. The motorcycle's headlight glared red. Its gas tank had flames painted on it and a shotgun holster riveted to either side, complete with shotguns. The seat was leather, <laughs> but the leather looked like, well... Caucasian human skin. <laughs> the guy on the bike would have made pro wrestlers run for mama. He was dressed in red muscle shirt and black jeans and a black leather duster with a hunting knife strapped to his thigh. He wore <laughs> red wraparound shades and he had the cruelest, most brutal face I'd ever seen. Handsome, I guess, but wicked. With an oily black crew cut and cheeks that were scarred from many, many fights. <laughs> And a hundred percent, he talks like this, like "Hey, kids, yeah, I got, I got, I got an offer for you. Step outside. I got something to talk to you about." <laughs> I haven't seen the because they've made a film of this. Haven't they? Apparently, it's bad, but they're making a new TV show. I have heard it's bad. Apparently, Pierce Brosnan is is the Latin teacher. <laughs> Oh, he's my favourite, Mr. Brenner slash Chiron. You're never going to be able to look at him the same way again, no, are you? Yeah, that's true. I was like, oh no, that's <laughs> such bad casting. But he's a great character and he's a great teacher character. So mm. Percy, right from the beginning, is really used to adults expecting and seeing the worst in him. And the thing that Mr. Brenner slash Chiron, he turns out to be, like always does is like, holds him to high standards and expects mm. him to do well and believes mm. he can do well and like talks to him like he's an intelligent person. Mm. I love mm. that about him. But you know, even before he's revealed to be this amazing, like wise centaur creature, he's this cool teacher that actually 
helps Percy respect himself. Yeah. I really like that he's seen this kid, this troubled kid, he is troubled, Percy, and hasn't just written him off the way Percy is used to every other teacher writing him off. And he's teaching Latin. I mean, Latin is quite a difficult subject. It's a hard sell. Yeah, Yeah, it's a really hard (laughs) sell. But he manages to make Latin and stuff like that and history feel really interesting to a kid like Percy who is Mm. hard to engage in these things and who's already had six years of bad school experiences. The fact that he's got Percy quite interested. He's a hard ass as well, right? Definitely had a few teachers like that where it's like you get on with them more. You know exactly where the line is. Yeah, he's very boundaried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's very no-nonsense. And he won't let Percy let himself down. You know, he's like, yeah. I know that you can do better than this and that you are better than this. I know that you're not stupid. You yeah. know, like, yeah, 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 I, yeah. I am not going to let you, you know, flounder in the shallows and, like, mess up your education when I know you can do better. Love him for that. And then, of course, then he's a centaur and that's super cool, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Should we talk stereometer? Yeah. So this is quite um, a scary book. It is quite a scary book. We do have we have some some pretty scary moments. We've got some some pretty real like fantasy fight jeopardy, but also a lot of quite real world jeopardy. We've yeah. got like out of the fantasy context to all other passers by looks like a terrorist bomb attack. Yeah. Well, and the book lets you know early on that it's not scared of killing characters off. I'll say that to not spoil anything. But like, it's not one of those books where you can feel secure that your main characters are going to be fine. Yeah, that's very true. You do start with him in a an abusive household, basically. Yeah. Like, and that's not fantasy violence. That's not like fun magic violence. That's just real. It's not on page. You don't see him do physically anything to her on page, but it's very clearly there. So, what would you say, score wise? Least seven. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Should we move on to Echo Echo? Uh, yeah. Okay, so our picture book is Echo Echo by Marilyn Singer and Jose Mass. And it's a book of poetry. It's a book of poems. All the poems are adaptations of a Greek myth, each of them. So each page, there's a full page illustration of the myth. And then on the other page, there are two poems. But it's a reverso poem. A reverso poem is when you've got a poem that's, you know, like a number of lines. Line one, line two, line three, line four, all the way to the end. A reverso poem is when you take that and you read it from the bottom up. So you read line four, line three, line two, line one. Which she claims to have invented, which I'm not convinced about. (laughs) I don't don't think you can can patent something as obvious as that. It's a, it's a version, I'd, I'd say it's a version of something <laughs> that already exists rather than something brand new. But it is cool. Like, it's a cool, it's a cool uh, way to play with language for definite. It is. Um, and each of the poems, which are using all the same words, just in the opposite order, switches perspective. So the right hand poem will be one ca- from one character's point of view and the left hand poem will be from the other yeah. person's uh, point of view in the story. And the pictures depict that as well. So they've all got yeah. some sort of symmetry. So you've got lots of sort of, you mm. know, like playing with shapes, playing with symmetry. Um, there's a very strong sort of colour scheme through this as well. It's all sort of yellows and blues and greens in the pictures. Um, sort of very yeah. Mediterranean vibes. 
and most of the characters are shown in profile the way you would on the side of a Greek pot. Whilst being quite appealingly cartoony, it's got a little bit of a sort of horrible histories vibe Mm -hmm. about the illustrations. Yeah. And then at the bottom of each page, it's got a little sort of very short summary of the myth that it's telling you about, like two lines. Yeah. Um, What did you think of this? I really want to love it. I think it's an amazing educational resource. And like to go back on the thing I was saying about like, did she or did she not invent this form? (laughs) Like I can totally see that like the advantage of saying like, oh, this poetry form that I invented, like the drive and the idea of this seems to be towards like, here's this fun thing you can do with poetry and language. And maybe that's something you could try too. Isn't that awesome? Like here are these stories that you know, and we've done something really fun with it. I think it's very clever how much it Mm. works if you don't already know the stories. Like the ones that I read and already knew the story, I was like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's clever. I see what you've done there. Mm. And the ones where I didn't know the story, I was going, I still don't know the story. I don't know what you... Like, it's a really hard thing to do well. I think she's... And she's stuck to the rules she's set for herself very strictly, Mm -hmm. which I think makes sense because that is the exercise. There's something sometimes about poetry like this that's to some extent clever for its own sake that Mm. leaves us a bit cold as poetry so there's some cool little tweaks in it in places um where like the way that it's reversed sort of twists the story which i think is the idea yes so the pandora and the box one was probably one of my favorites i think that one works really nicely oh how humans are weak don't peek when a god speaks it isn't hard to listen it might have been great zeus's game no matter that she gets the blame she didn't collect them but she let loose those evils she just had to be curious that pandora blast her why she opened that darn box holding on to hope alone alone Holding on to hope, she opened that darn box. Why blast her? That Pandora, she just had to be curious. She let loose those evils, but she didn't collect them. She gets the blame. No matter that, it might have been Great Zeus's game. Hard to listen, isn't it, when a god speaks? Don't peek. Oh, how humans are weak. Yeah. That one's cool. It is cool. And the se- there's, like the second one is arguably like just better, Yeah. right? This is the problem with this sort of form that's so strict, is that a few of them do feel like one or the other of the two is the poem. Yeah. And the other one is like the best that you've managed to squeeze (laughs) (laughs) squeeze it into the form. But I really like the way it's sort of like changed sympathies here. Yeah, this this one's really cool. This one works. And what I will say, like given all of that, like not entirely my cup of tea as much as I thought it would be. But I think, like, as an educational resource, it's really cool. Like, as something that, like, if you're doing, like, a module on Greek myths with, like, primary school kids or, like, younger Mm -hmm. secondary school kids and you have this and you can introduce this as a poetry exercise and an example of poetry being used in an interesting way. Yeah. And, like, a different kind of poetry to what kids are always necessarily going to see like it you know it's it doesn't rhyme it's not a dum-de-dum it's doing something a bit more interesting um i think that's brilliant i also think it's a good teaching tool you could 
because you could play with like subject and object as well. So like the simplest version of this is like dog bites man, man bites dog. You know? Yeah. Yeah, like there'd be a lovely workshop in it, yeah. 100%. I feel like I'm being too harsh on it because it is lovely and it's a beautiful object. Like the pictures are really gorgeous. I, I sort of like as well that it is just a poetry book. I wonder whether... I mean, main complaint is like for them to work, it feels like they rely on prior knowledge. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe maybe that's a class thing. Maybe that's why it annoys us. Maybe because I think there is still that thing of like... If you're from a certain class, like even from a very young age, like, oh, of course, you know, your classics. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So I wonder if yeah. it's like tripping a bit of that rightly or wrongly. I don't know if that is what's going on at all. But I think that all of your critiques are fair and we don't have to be, you know, resoundingly positive about every book we, we read. Like, that's not a problem. I, I think this is a school book. This is what we've come to. Like, this isn't one to like get out of the library for yourself and your kid necessarily, unless your kid's really into learning poems off by heart, which some of them are. Mm, but mm. it's a teaching aid, this one. It's a book to have in school and have contextualised by an adult who knows the stories and who can put a lesson plan together around it. It's sort of, it's mm. not a storybook. And we haven't done... Have we done any poetry books yet? I don't think we have. Maybe I've judged this too quickly. I've just read the, the King Midas one again, and that is pretty cool as well. I might, I might, I might have jumped too quickly to conclusions. I should maybe have spent spent a bit longer with this than I did. To be fair, as well, I'm, I should qualify with this. That I, it's not unusual that I do this with poetry, where I read it once and I go like, "Nah, I don't get it," and then I go back and I go, oh, "What a no, thing for a poet cool, to admit." <laughs> King Midas and his daughter. Because he helped out Silenus, this satyr granted Midas his wish. The power to change anything he touched to gold. Midas made the terrible mistake of touching his daughter. Golden girl, alas, my good father still dares to call me. Who would never offer a gentle hand? What kind of man would for years not give a caress? I must confess, I suffer too much. Today, so needy, so greedy, for one magic touch. For one magic touch, so greedy, so needy, today I suffer much. I must confess, what kind of man would for years not give a caress, would not, would never offer a gentle hand? Who still dares to call me good father, alas, my girl, golden? That is quite, that is quite good, to be fair. That is quite good. <laughs> I, might have to, I might have to rescind some of this. Uh... <laughs> to be fair as well, what is really cool is that it's a poetry book for kids or school-age children mm. that isn't, like, immediately available. I think, like, most poetry written for kids is, like, designed to be, like, one shot straight in, sort of easy connection, easy laugh, which I think is is great. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I guess there is something quite cool about something that you have to come back to a couple of times. It's, like, it's uh, it definitely, it, may, it makes you read it differently in in the way that uh poetry can do i guess yeah it well, sort of it demands back, a I'm, bit of time <laughs> i'm backpedaling off you now aren't i can <laughs> i see i'm getting into it now is there another one you want to read because i'm happy to like i think poetry on the podcast is great well we should do the should we do the medusa one because we mentioned that in a in the percy jackson bit didn't we heroic perseus was given the task of slaying the snake-headed monster medusa Anyone who gazed at her turned to stone. Perseus used his shield as a mirror so that he didn't have to look directly at her face. 
after he beheaded her, some of the drops of blood turned into Pegasus, the winged horse. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that was a thing. I know. I was waiting for that to happen in Percy Jackson. It didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe uh. it will later. Okay, so we've got Perseus first, then Medusa. There is no man who wouldn't be scared stiff, petrified indeed. I must have your head, stone-hearted monster. I am the chosen one to rid the world of you nasty creatures. It is my curse to be the hero. Look away. You cannot shield yourself from me. Shield yourself from me? You cannot look away, hero. It is my curse to be the one to rid the world of you nasty creatures. I am the chosen stone-hearted monster. I must have your head, petrified indeed, scared stiff. There is no man who wouldn't be. Yeah, it's a good one. No, they are good. They are good. And it's nice that it gives that sort of like um, the goody and the baddie yeah. sort of coming at the situation with sort of parallel motives. You know, they're both they're both the baddies to be gotten rid of to each other. Yeah. I think it's a really good one for talking about point of view and perspective yeah. as well. Yeah. Ignore me. It's dead good. Get it in your schools. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, well. Apologies for my... That would be uh... a very interesting edit to do. <laughs> Okay, so that was episode 39 of Even the Trunchbull. Thanks for listening. Once again, if you've any thoughts on books you loved as a kid... Or love now as a kid. Let us know, or ask a grown-up to let us know. We're at eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com, or catch us on Twitter at trunchbullpod, or on Instagram at eventhetrunchbull. Intro music for this episode and every episode is What a Wonderful Day by Shane Ivers. And remember, kids' books can be for everyone, because we've all been kids. Even the trunch